You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, (laughs) open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Alex Gomez Marin is a physicist. He originally worked as a theoretical physicist until he transitioned into biology. He is one of the winners of the Linda G. O'Brien Noetic Sciences Research Prize, which is held by IONS, the Institute of Noetic Sciences. His prize-winning proposal is called Seeing Without Eyes and proposes further examination and experiments in which blindfolded and blind people were able to see using EOV, extraocular vision, which is the ability to see without the physical eye, essentially a type of sight using a form of ESP or remote viewing. The mechanism is still not really understood. He is an associate professor at the Instituto de Neurosciences in Alicante, Spain. Additionally, he's an associate editor for the prestigious organism's Journal of Biological Sciences and contributes his knowledge to the Science Advisory Committee at the Cobb Institute. Alex is a valued member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Dutch Brain Interface Initiative and is a director at the esteemed Paris Center in Italy. The Institute of Noetic Sciences is a nonprofit scientific research center and direct experience lab specializing in the intersection of science and profound human experience. Founded in 1973 by Apollo 14 astronaut and sixth man to walk on the moon, Edgar Mitchell, IONS is dedicated to exploring the frontiers of consciousness and extended human capacities to promote a more holistic view of human potential and the nature of reality. Hey, everyone. I'm really excited to let you know about the science and spirituality salons I'm now hosting. During these intimate events, a scientifically verified psychic medium will give all of you readings, and I will give a talk on the science and evidence that changed my mind about an afterlife. So also be an amazing opportunity to get to meet some of you in person or virtually and to share more about all the science and data that transformed my worldview and got me through my worst days. These can be hosted in your home, in a nearby cafe with a private room, or they can even be virtual. I've hosted a few already and they were really special, fascinating, emotional, evidential, So if you're interested in getting a small group together over dinner, brunch, drinks, coffee, to learn more about the science and to get evidential medium readings, 
send me an email at hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put science and spirituality in the title. Welcome to What the Fuck Just Happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a sciencey skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? Hi, so I am on with Alex Gomez Marin. Thank you so much for coming on. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm a physicist born in Spain, in Barcelona. I did theoretical physics for some time, pen and paper, basically. But then I transitioned into biology and I studied little creatures like fruit flies and worms, which are organisms that are studied in many labs around the world. And then I became more interested in, let's call it that way, higher organisms or more complex organisms, although flies can be really complex in their behavior and in their brains. And so that led me to study human beings, which is actually what the promise of neuroscience is, that we should understand something about human brains and human minds. And lately, I've been devoting most of my energies to studying human consciousness in the real world, with the twist that the aspects I like to study about consciousness are those that I call at the edges. And why at the edges? Because they're sometimes marginalized in academia. Those topics or those phenomena are a bit uncomfortable. And also edges because I think they're frontier of knowledge. So it's, it's super fascinating to study this, these edges of consciousness. So that's what I do now, more or less. You had a fascinating theory and paper that was award-winning in IONS. Can you explain a little bit about your theory of EOV? Sure. Thank you. Well, technically speaking, it's not a theory and it's not even my theory. It's actually a phenomenon. It's something that happens or that people say that happens or they can do. EOV stands for extraocular vision. But this is just one of the actually many ways that have been given throughout time in different countries and cultures in Russia, in Mexico, in Indonesia, and so on, that refer to a phenomenon by which, to put it simply, you can see the world, but not using your physical eyes. So the claim there is that there's something, perhaps we can call it the mind's eye or mind in general, that can perceive what's out there but you're not using your eyes or any of the other senses. So it's kind of like our consciousness is perceiving information outside of our body and then downloading it to our body. 
Well, the problem is, or the fascinating question is that we don't know. When I say we, I mean, well, people have studied it here and there for many, many years, but it's not really known how it works. And some people still doubt that it actually happens. So here we have this double question. Well, is there a phenomenon there? And also, if there is, well, how does it do it? And that's why, and perhaps that's related to your question, that's why we need theory. We need experiments to figure out things about this creature. We don't know how it, how it does it. But also we need to theory it so that we can think, we can even conceive how that would be possible beyond metaphors, which is what we sometimes need to use to make some sense of it. But we're lacking, I would say, perhaps a mathematical theory, uh, even a metaphysics, which is another weird word, which simply means some philosophical background. So the whole edifice needs to be built with data, philosophy, mathematics, and theory, so that I see this as two dancing hands. Theory says or directs our attention to new experiments, and new experiments correct the theories we have. And it's this dance that is really important to, to have going, and it's really hard, actually. It's really hard. What experiments or data or anything have you seen in favor of this theory that's already out there? Yes. All right. So there's quite a lot of evidence, and sometimes people confuse saying that you have evidence with, with saying that you have proof that this is inequivocal, that there's no doubt about it. There's always doubt, but then there's a lot of evidence again. And this evidence goes from some videos you can find on YouTube, which of course, from a scientific point of view, are far from what we need, to then more controlled situations where you can invite these subjects, these people that have this sensibility. And we can talk about how it is trained or who may have it more easily. You can invite these people to certain tasks or games in the lab and ask them to do certain things. And that's how you make sure that you're, they're not using their eyes or their other senses. And that's how you can learn something about how this works. For instance, two really amazing things I've seen. One is with a group of children and their parents and they were practicing here in Spain and they were doing all sorts of things with blindfolds. We can get into that because blindfolds is a typical method used by, by coaches and trainers who train this to make sure that kids cannot see. But of course they could cheat. And I've also and I've also seen cheating. I must say that. I've seen seen cheating, but I've seen things that don't look like cheating at all. So this this girl in particular was doing a puzzle and it was doing it really well. But then I asked her, well, could you do it again, but turning the pieces upside down and I shuffled them. And of course, you can always come with a very weird hypothesis or idea as to, well, maybe perhaps she had memorized all the pieces as I was shuffling them, looking through. But, well, she did the puzzle, no problem. And then I asked her, and that's important, you can also ask how they do it. And she said, well, I can actually see in the same way that you see without blindfolds, I can see with blindfolds, which is a pretty strong statement, right? But, but she actually did it. Now you can say, you can go through the usual, let's put it this way, excuses. You could say, well, it was chance. All this is, it was chance. Well, I don't think so. It was cheating, quite unlikely. And so, well, at least there's a big question mark that this happened and we need to figure out how it happens and whether we can repeat it. Later on, I can also tell you um, work I've done with a blind man because to come to circumvent, to go around some of these critiques which are necessary by skeptics, as long as they're not too dogmatic, but skeptics that say, well, in any case, Alex, I won't believe anything you say because they may be cheating. Well, 
if you practice this with a person who's blind, there's no cheating because they can see anyways. So I've seen a blind man actually perceive information that's in images in front of him and describe it really accurately. And well, again, that's really puzzling. I have a question about the blind man who can see. Was he blind since birth? How does he know he's seeing? No, no, he wasn't blind since birth. He, this got progressive and very early on, I mean, I know the story, but very early on. And then when he was around, well, he used a cane early on with, when he was 16, he was using a cane and then it got more and more. And then he lost it completely or 99.9%. And that's also an important difference that could be studied in the future. Because of course, if you've never seen anything, then what it is like to see, um, it's another world in their, in their minds, really. But in that case, and this is also fascinating, this blind man would tell me about how he stopped dreaming in colors and started dreaming in black and white because he forgot the colors. This is heartbreaking and at the same time fascinating. And then how he actually did some trainings, some remote viewing trainings, workshops, and then he started to recover the colors in his dreams and then he started to practice and believe he could also see the outside world when he was awake. And so it's like a whole progression from losing sight to start to recover it and then to experience these, these perceptual abilities himself. Does he say that seeing now the remote viewing type of sight he's using, is it the same as when he used to see with eyes? I mean, does he, can he just walk around like a non-blind person using sight? No, no, he can't. Not that he could not, but so far he cannot. And this uh, difference I've seen, having studied the phenomenology, as I was telling you, of extraocular vision, asking to people who, who actually train these capacities and asking and reading all I could find about studies that have been done. And actually, when it comes to children, it seems that they can see as we see, as I was telling you with, with that example. And... How they see it's also funny. Some children say they see the same thing, but just small, like as if the screen, they see it like, like through a screen. And by the way, some kids can see things that are far away and they would need glasses in order to see them. And without glasses, again, allegedly, a scientist always needs to say allegedly because one should go there and do the experiment, but they, they say they can. When it comes to adults, it's, it's much more difficult that these kind of high resolution, almost literal way of seeing manifests. But nevertheless, there's something that's going on perceptually that seems to go beyond the five senses. The story we've been told about, well, we have five senses and these are the channels, these are the cables through which we can receive information about and from the world. And and it's, it's not only if you're blind, I suppose we I think we all do it during the day, but just in small kind of glimpses or sparks, and maybe unconsciously we don't realize we're doing it. But it's not un unconceivable that this, I mean, this is quite extraordinary, but I think at the same time it's an ordinary human capacity. It's just that it's not really worked out. They say all of us have psychic abilities, psi abilities. Most of us just don't know that we do based on our culture. I've heard people who have out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences see colors on a spectrum we can't see here. Has anyone 
reported that in any of your studies? No, but we can come back to out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences. Or maybe I can just mention this now. And then I'll, I'll say something about colors that's also fascinating. And we don't know, but about these other ways of seeing, like when, look, when we dream, normal dream, no, it doesn't need to be a lucid dream, just a dream. Well, we see things, we wake up and we remember and we were doing things. So, so there's, in a way, it's not so surprising or spectacular. Our mind is seeing when we have our eyes closed. That happens, obviously, every night or almost every night. But then you can have a lucid dream or then you can have something that looks like an out-of-body experience. Some people say that lucid dreams and out-of-body experience are kind of the same thing. It's like if it was a mountain, it depends from where you look at. You, you, may, you may think it's a different mountain, but it's the same mountain. When people have near-death experiences, they're also seeing things. They're not, they're not seeing them with their eyes, right? So I like to use this metaphor of mountains that then go into the sea and become islands. So there's this archipelago, and these are the edges of consciousness I was telling you about. There's this archipelago of different islands that some people have been bold enough to study them and learn a lot about, like remote viewing, out-of-body experiences. They're, they're experts. They're real experts that have devoted their life to study them. And it's quite likely that they're all connected. It doesn't mean they're the same thing, but perhaps there's a, there's a smooth way of going from, now I'm using a little bit of extraocular vision, but perhaps I'm perceiving something through remote viewing. And then when I'm, when I'm at night having a very lucid dream, maybe I'm in some sort of out-of-body experience. So that could, that could very well be the case, that all these things are related. Now, with respect to color, when I practice with this blind man and he tries to describe images, we also sometimes play with colors, objects of different colors, and he tries to discriminate. And he told me, look, Alex, I'm colorblind to green. And that's funny because, well, he's blind and he's not seeing the colors, but he's seeing them. He says, I have real trouble trying to see some colors and other colors seem quite easy for me to see. For instance, I've talked to blind people who also seem to have these abilities and they say that blue is a color so easy for them to picture in their minds. There's, there are more questions you could ask about colors. You could ask, well, and actually these are in the plan of experiments we should do at some point once we have a better handle on the phenomenon, which is, well, as, as you would do, like if you would roll back time when, when natural philosophers and physicists were studying vision and color, we didn't really know what color was. We didn't know that, that white light, as it, you know, it, it's actually made of all the colors in it. That's pretty cool, right? So you can do experiments like psychologists would do and, and try to see how people see, not with their eyes, but with their mind's eye, and what the different colors contribute or what's about the intensity if we turn off the lights can they still see it or if we use infrared or if we use ultraviolet can they still detect these frequencies where we couldn't and so that also gives us clues about how it works you know we go to the color spectrums past what our eyes can pick up as you were mentioning infrared ultraviolet do you think there are spectrums of colors that just go way beyond that that our human eyes can't perceive Oh, they, of course. And radio signals is an example. Like if you go, if we really see a really tiny, what is it? What, 300? I mean, this is technical, but it's 300 nanometers. In any case, it's like there's a whole range and we see this. Now, the moment we go left or right, it's infrared, ultraviolet. And if we go further and further, it's radio. So not, right now we have all these Wi-Fi and radio signals crossing our, our bodies. And 
we cannot detect them, or at least we cannot tune into the radio. And we needed the radio device for the, for that to happen. But look, I was telling you at the beginning that I've studied the behavior and the sensory systems of animals for some years. And other animals, non-human animals, can detect really weird ranges in the in the spectrum of, of, of light. And they can detect, not only detect, they can see colors that we probably cannot even imagine. Just, you know, very simple animals can see colors that we could not even picture in our minds. And they have, you know, we have different types of photoreceptors. I mean, this can get technical, but other creatures can have 12 types where we, we can do with only three, right? And so who knows what they're perceiving? It's fascinating when you zoom out a bit from humans and you realize that there is a kind of a perceptual party going on in the natural world just by paying attention as to how animals or plants even perceive what's around them. I never think of plants as perceiving, but there've been all these studies. Like, who is it? Dr. Cleve Baxter said plants seem to respond to empathy when they see other plants being watered, they've reacted. I mean, it's fascinating when you think about the level consciousness permeates in a way we just don't even understand. Totally. I assume you're pretty interested in the work of Dr. Kenneth Ring. Just so our listeners know, he studies near-death experiences and he focuses on blind people who've had near-death experiences and then come back reporting sight. What are your thoughts on his research? Well, it's fascinating. It's fascinating because... Just near-death experiences by themselves, they're like, I call them backdoors. They're backdoors to, to the house of the mind. So we can find rooms and secrets that we wouldn't otherwise. Now, the blind man seeing or blind people seeing is fascinating enough. If you combine both things, you can get new insights, right? And so this is fascinating research indeed. And, and again, it, it, it goes back to this metaphor of the archipelago, right? It's like doing scuba diving. Now you can go from one island to the other and you can learn things that you couldn't learn with people who can see with their physical eyes just because now you have this really tiny subset of the population. By the way, it's really hard because then you need to fish somebody who's had a near-death experience and that remembers it and that's also blinded that can tell you things about it. And from it, you need to extract similarities from which you can propose hypotheses as to how the phenomenon may work. I know a lot of people, not only blind people, I mean, I did read about this in Dr. Kenneth Ring's book, but other sighted people report during NDEs that they have, which none of us can really even fathom this in our human bodies. They have 360 degrees of sight. Has anyone reported that in any of the studies you've done? Yes. Yes, people do. People say they do. Again, as a scientist, people do. People say they do. Yes. Some people, when they're guessing, they're simple games, really. You don't need to make it very sophisticated. You can have, I mean, you at some point you do. I mean, you need to put images in envelopes and randomize it and so on. But, you know, you can imagine you have these colors, these three colors, and the person doesn't see them. And then you ask the person, you put them behind and you just leave one color and then you say, well, what's the color? And they can tell. Sometimes they can tell. Sometimes they can see something that's behind. And they say they do so by expanding their awareness. Um, look, there's a moment where if we go past the world, the word impossible, right? If you can see something, literally see it 
with your mind's eye, what's the problem? You have it in front, you have it behind, you have it underneath, you have it under a table. Like, well, <laughs> I, I, if you if you entertain that that's possible, I don't see why it should be such a big deal to see it behind. And people do, and people do say they can do it, yes. Do you think this is going to be a solution for blind people across the board, where if this will become refined enough that blind people will just be able to navigate the world identical to a sighted person eventually? That's a really beautiful and difficult and complicated question to answer. So I say no, and then I'll say yes. So I'll say no, because we we know so little, despite all the work that's been done for many decades, that it's dangerous to promise something like that. You don't want to promise something like that. If somebody's blind, the person is blind, right? That doesn't mean that then, as it happens very naturally, that they overmaster, you could say, other senses. The second thing I would say about that, there's a beautiful book by John Hall called Touching the Stone or Touching the Rock, I always forget. And in that book, he describes, he describes his process of becoming blind. And it's not just a kind of complain or mourning about, oh, I'm losing all of that. He also tells us about what he's gaining and how he can come out when it's raining and through the sound of the drops on the car, or on the leaves, he can picture in his mind this whole landscape of sound, this soundscape and so on. And so bear in mind that yes, blind people lost their sight, their physical sight, but they also gain other things. Like the other the other night, I was putting my my older daughter to to sleep, and and he and she told me, oh, so you're going to see your friend, the blind man, and he was she was so curious about him, and it was so interesting to realize that she was getting the idea that all that happened to him is that he lost something, but I was trying to explain well how sensitive they are in other realms. So that'll be the second the second answer to your question, and then a yes would come by realizing that precisely because you have this difficulty, then you, you can be more motivated or prompted to practice all of that and believe that it can happen. So I think that's one of the reasons why in particular this person has such sensibilities. And by the way, I've heard that people who go to meditate to China, do the real things and stuff, well, they can spend a year with their eyes blindfolded and then a year not not speaking and then a year with their ears, you know, covered. So why do they do that? Because when you turn off certain things, other things can turn on. And so that's why I say yes and no. <laughs> in your studies, I know you talked a little bit about blindfolding a child and she put together a puzzle and what are, describe some of the other studies you've done in the experience that you haven't told us that just most blew you away? It's a mixture, as I was telling you. I mean, you asked me about the fascinating stuff, but there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of trying, a lot of getting it right. And it's, it's a whole art I'm learning because doing this kind of, yeah, we call them experiments when we do them with, with people. They're kind of games. You don't know, as a, as a scientist, as an experimenter, how much you're contributing to it. Also, if you're asking people to do things 
they they are they can have this thing that's called performance anxiety they want to do it well so they they become a bit more nervous in the same way that if you ask somebody okay do you play the guitar okay just play for 100 people you know it's like all of a sudden things don't work so well so you need to can in a way fight or navigate all this and then sometimes things like that happen i've seen again i've seen doesn't mean it's scientifically proven i wouldn't probably it's real and it's not scientifically proven to my understanding, but I've seen people read, for instance. I've seen people read a text, and I've seen people also guess things that are hidden. Now, again, this could be chance, this could be coincidence, this could be fraud, this could be cheating. This phenomena, that's something I'd like to say also to you and your viewers, these phenomena are a bit tricky. They're a bit trickster. Like, if you want to put them in a box, it's like a funny creature. Sometimes they don't let you put in a box. And that also is a reminder that the scientist is not in control. This is a kind of science I'm also reading about and, and, and trying to practice. One, when it's not us dominating the entire situation. And doing experiments is hard in, in general. But for this phenomena, of, this psychic phenomena, this phenomena of the mind, well, sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not there. Sometimes you think... You're going to have the best, the best morning and it doesn't happen at all. And sometimes by chance, for instance, let me tell you something concrete. I sometimes wear amulets, just you could call it a necklace or something like this right now, or something uh, that I bring with me, call me superstitious if you want. And I was wearing some of these things, one of these, and then the person told me there's something that's interfering with me as I'm doing this. And I thought, oh, maybe it's that. And I didn't say anything. I just, I put it away. And then we continued and I asked, well, how are you doing with it? And, and the person said, well, no, now it seems this is gone. And then we continued doing the thing. And then when, when the, the, the session finished, I went and picked it up and put it back on my body. And the moment I did that, the person said, oh, it seems like the interference is back, right? And he couldn't see what I had done because I was the blind man. And I didn't, I didn't tell him that I was doing that at all. So sometimes it's not what you prepare as an experiment. It's more like the surprising thing, the spontaneous thing that, that makes you wonder. Again, was it chance? I mean, this is, the, this is the paranoid of the scientists studying this. Was it chance? Was it something I didn't control? Or was it the real, the real thing manifesting again? I need to ask you about the reading. Did you write one word on a piece of paper? Are they reading a book? Are they reading a paper on Kindle? Yeah. In principle, they could do anything, but I, I printed a, a paragraph of a philosophy book I really love, and I'm pretty sure, well, it doesn't matter if they ever read it, but just philosophy book. The, 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 the introduction of Matter and Memory by Henry Bergson, whoever knows that. And I printed in big font, small font, and super small font. And, well, they read, they can read, and they put the finger on top as, as, a, as a kid is reading things. And, yeah, if you make it smaller, they, they still can. And then there are things that are puzzling. There are other things that are puzzling because as they're reading, you can try to interfere. That's another thing that we scientists love doing. It's not that we want the phenomenon, as I say, to always take place. We also want it to go away. And then it's interesting. So if doing that, it goes away, then I can bring it back. And so we learn again about this elephant, right? The shape that it has by making it go in and go out. And sometimes they can read but depending how you present the text, then the reading becomes difficult. And this has been reported by, for instance, Jacobo Greenberg, the, the kids can, the Mexican neurophysiologist, 
who who actually disappeared 29 years ago, and we're going to do something to honor his work next year, by the way. Well, so he's reported the reading of kids. So an, an other scientist 100 years ago from France also reported that another way of pursuing the evidence, pursuing the rabbit down the rabbit hole is that, well, if somebody says that has seen that and then somebody else from another time, another country who probably didn't read that also said something very similar, well, you start to triangulate. And, and again, you wonder, well, that, that must be real or let's find out. Now, first of all, you said the kids who were reading this or adults as well. I'm not sure if it was just children or adults as well. Mostly children, actually, mostly children. Mostly children. About how old are the children, by the way? Yeah, so the, the, the people who work with them, these coaches, by the way, these coaches work with them because the parents, of course, want them to have the kids to be, this is important to mention. Let, let me just go on a, on a little footnote, a little segue here, and we, we'll, we'll come back to reading. It's not that parents want their kids to have circus-like powers, you know? Oh, look at my, you know, to go to a party. Look at my kid. I blindfold him or her. And No, when you're working like this, you're more into your presence. You're more aware. You're more focused. So you could call it meditation, what's going on there. So by working like this, these parents hope that their kids will be better at school. They will be more, uh, you know, have better attention skills, maybe be more at ease with themselves at home. So it, it often comes from this, you could say, psychological or pedagogical need. Now, when, when the kids are practicing this, well, you can have all sort of tests. And for them, it's a game. For them, it's really, that's another fascinating thing. For them, it's, it's no big deal. They're just doing it. Because the moment you start reflecting about how impossible that thing you're doing is, then it goes away. They're not rationalizing too much. So what's the age? Usually from six, seven years old to about 12, 13, 14. And this is typical. There are exceptions, right? But what happens before? Well, they're, before they're too, too small to even ask them things like read or, right? And then when, when they become teenagers, when we became teenagers, our whole bodies and minds, they're in complete metamorphosis, right? The whole thing is messed up, turning into another. <laughs> we're the same person, but we're turning into another creature, right? And so then these capacities seem to be a bit put to the side and the interests are different. And then when we're older, we're so used to the rational mind, the logic mind, all these self-limiting beliefs of what can and cannot happen and so on, that then it's really, really a lot of work to reawaken those abilities that express beautifully and naturally throughout this stage between 6, 7 and 12, 13. But I'm going to back up and ask the reading question. I assume the philosophy paragraph are the older children, not five and six-year-olds. I would assume those reading the philosophy paragraph are a bit like the 10, 11. But you said they touch the paper. Is there any chance that they are feeling different shapes of the print? This is a very intelligent question, actually. And this is a hypothesis. I mean, that's how we speak scientists. What it means, it's a possibility. Again, I'm telling you, when I say we, I mean, generally speaking, the community, we don't know how it works. But some people favor some kind of explanations and some people favor others. As I'm, as I'm telling you, dogmatic skeptics say there's no need to do experiments. This is impossible. It doesn't work. But then once you open the door that it's possible, 
how could it work? So interestingly, there's a, a whole corpus of work that says that it could work through through the skin, through some sort of detectors, sensors we have in our skin. And actually, many many of the practitioners of mindsight or extraocular vision, they they need to touch things. They touch them. It looks like they're scanning them with their with their hands, right? And there was a lot of work done in, in the Soviets did a lot of work with this, and, and they even give it, gave it a name. They call it dermo-optical perception. Dermo, dermis, is the skin, optical. So you can see through dermo-optical perception. You can perceive through your skin, right? And I've seen it too. And actually, you can then play with the turn on and off game, switch it on and off. Say, well, now if you wear gloves, can you still do it? If you, get, if you wear two gloves that let lets less light in, can you still do it? And then there are sort of crazy claims, like in China, there, there, there's some old papers that say that there was a girl who could read with, I think, a girl or a boy, with, with her ears, right? So that's so she was putting the things here and somehow sensing them. So it's an open possibility. I don't think that's the whole story because I've also seen and I've also been told by people I trust that people can do it without touching, right? And that's where we go into this mix of phenomenon. Maybe there's a little bit of touching, maybe there's a little bit of mindset, maybe there's a little bit of remote viewing going on, and that depends the moment you're using it. One more thing to say, back to animals, because we often forget about animals. Animals have incredible abilities to sense their surrounding, and then, you know, octopuses can change, and, and I pay attention to the hardcore biological literature because sometimes and actually there was a paper about brittle stars and the title of the paper in a respected biological journal was extraocular vision in the brittle star right so it's even more common it could be more common than we think it could be that even some other animals have also developed these abilities and so we can you know go back and forth and wonder well what would it take to to do it through sensors although it's really hard for me to imagine, but why not, that just having sensors on your skin, you could read a text. That seems that you would need a lot of training, actually. That seems like a sciability in and of itself, unless it was huge letters imprinted in a different texture, which I assume it's just a normal printer. Yes. And by the way, let me just say one, two more things here. Maybe I'm getting too detailed, but to just give more context. Of course, when you do these tests, you need to make sure that you could not detect the marks of the printer, right? You could say you have such sensitive touch and it could be possible, right? So these are the kind of things that make you a bit paranoid, but you need to control to make sure that it's not that they have huge finger sensitivity. And one more thing about the colors, maybe, maybe reading is too much, but perceiving colors could be done with the fingers. I mean, there's, there's no sensor known that could do it, but when I, was, when I was working with the fruit flies, it was discovered that they had the larval stage of the fruit fly had all these light-sensitive channels throughout their skin, right? So sometimes we don't need to go to crazy size stories. We just go back and look at the animal kingdom, and it's incredible. It's wonderful what, what nature can come up with. But people have also reported seeing things without touching them. Yes. You said you put colored pens behind you or when people were blind or when blindfolded and without touching, they've been able to report types of sight, correct? Yes, correct. Yes. Backing up, you were talking about some of the experiments. You do certain types of 
interference, you've said. Would you give an example of what you meant by that? Sure. So one example was what I was telling you about the gloves and the fingers. So let's imagine somebody's doing it with blindfolds and they can read or they can see images or they have no problem telling colors if you want to make something simpler. Telling blue from red, for instance, right? And you present objects and they can, or images or simply, simply, and they can say, okay, so now you can make it lift the bar. You can raise the bar and make it harder. How would you make it harder? Well, you could put things inside a box. So then there's no way they're, they're, they're cheating because they're just doing it inside a box or behind some curtain. And then, okay, they still do it. Then you can raise the bar a bit higher and say, okay, now I'm going to ask them to wear gloves. And of course, as you do all of those things, it gets cumbersome and weird because actually you're killing the phenomenon probably because I believe this, these abilities just express in the real world when they have to. And of course, if you bring somebody to a lab, make the person repeat something 20 times, ask him to or her to wear gloves and put things in a box, it becomes more and more absurd. But if they still do it, then you can go further. You can make sure there's absolutely no light inside the box, right? And the ideal case is a moment where they cannot do it anymore. And that's what gives you the clue of, okay, so what did they have before and what they don't have now and why this changed? So we don't want our performance to do it well all the time. We also want sometimes that they fail, let's put it this way. And so we learn what was really important, what was an important factor in their success. What seems to be the tipping point of interfering? Again, it is hard. And also sometimes you, you find things that are conflicting, that the story doesn't add up. And another thing to mention here, and I can, I can give you examples, is that people are different. We shouldn't forget this. They're not, even I was going to say, they're not mice in a cage, but even mice in a cage that my, my colleagues study, they're all different. They have personalities and it matters how they slept and what they ate in the morning and so on. Like we do. So people are different not just because of how their day is going, but also even the tricks they learned to do what they do. And we can think of motor skills or skills we have, even writing. Some people write in a way, some people write in another way or playing instruments. So you also need to be very attentive to the different ways that people do things and also ask them how they do it to realize that what works in a person perhaps doesn't work in another person. Have you noticed differences between sighted people who are blindfolded and people who are blind? I, I, I haven't been able to because I haven't worked with so, with, with so many blind people, actually. You know, I know one very well. And, and after the IONS prize and, and, and conference and so on, well, I was lucky enough that some people caught me in the radar and, and wrote back to me and... Some of them had known about this phenomenon and others can actually do it. And a subset of them are blind. So, so what I'm trying to do now is, of course, try to expand and see who's out there, not just in my surroundings in Spain, but in the world that can do it. So I cannot answer the question because for that, you need to work with a few sighted people and a few blind people. And even then, well, perhaps there you, you could answer your question and find some differences and some commonalities, yes. Have you worked with any blind people who are blind since birth? No, no, I haven't. And that's an even more challenging case because if we were, as we were saying a few minutes ago, their internal worlds, like what is red 
how do you even explain what red is to a person who's never seen red? So when you ask the person to tell between red and blue, well, perhaps the person could do it consistently, and that would be fascinating, but it's really hard, if not impossible, to convey what's red to somebody who's never seen a color, right? There's an interesting description in Dr. Kenneth Ring's book of somebody blind from birth, and they were trying to explain. It was very interesting, and he could only assume it, it was sight. Club Care is a charity organization founded by Emma Justice after the loss of her father, David Justice, to glioblastoma. Club Care is dedicated to supporting children and families dealing with cancer. They strive to create joyful moments through meaningful projects impacting individual families, as well as larger oncology communities. Funding for all projects is raised through philanthropic donations. Go to makingheadway.org backslash clubcare programs for a complete list of programs and activities. Well, let, let me say something here a bit more speculative, which means just imagining or thinking out loud crazy possibilities. But if, and this is really important to my work as a neuroscientist, because why am I doing this? Well, because it's fascinating, but also because I think it can help us answer a really fundamental question in neuroscience, which is a simple one is, what is a brain? What does a brain do? And some people say, well, it's a computer and it just processes information and it creates our perception and so on. But if a brain, it's not so much a computer produ producing images, but more like a filter or a prism that's refracting and reflecting light and making it just, you know, appear in different colors and, and maybe capturing or another, another metaphor could be a radio, is a device that it's tuning into something that's not itself producing, that's out there. Well, if the brain is that and not a computer, then again, I could imagine that a blind person from sight during a near-death experience somehow can see. Why? Because maybe the filtering mechanism that is his or her brain, despite being damaged or not functional when it comes to sight, physical sight, as a filter now, it lets in this color of light that is, to use metaphorically, the image of a prism, right? Or the radio. Maybe the radio is not broken. It's just that it wasn't dialed there. And so... I think most of these phenomena, remote viewing, lucid dreaming, extraocular vision, and so on, they, again, like arrows, they all point to this fascinating new way of conceiving what a brain is, which is more like a filter than a magic lamp that produces everything. There seems to be so much in favor of the filter theory, which is hugely in favor of survival of consciousness. Yes, yes. And people, by the way, people don't know. I mean, I, I discovered it relatively recently. I was reading William James, and there's this paper, and I, I hope I don't sound too pedantic or academic, but there's this article he wrote, and he was a really good writer, actually. It's, it's really enjoyable to read. In 1898, it's called On Human Immortality. So, I mean, the topic should interest us all, right? It's on human immortality, right? And there, James says wonderful things and very well written, and then says, there's no doubt that the function of the mind, perception, memory, attention, and so on, depends on the brain. Why? Well, if you hit me strong in the head, I pass out. 
I don't remember, I don't perceive, and so on. But that it depends doesn't mean that there's just one way of thinking about it. So the moment you have these two alternatives, but let me tell you, most of my neuroscience colleagues would say, well, maybe they, they didn't even think that there's or, or come across this second way of conceiving brains. Now, the moment you have this kind of theory and put it in the light of all these edges of consciousness, all these weird phenomena, well, there, there cease to be weird. What's anomalous then becomes more normal under this, under this frame. And this is a good marriage of theory and experiment, right? Where, where things that you had no way of fitting in, you had to put under the carpet or just smash them. Now they find a home, a conceptual home, and that's how research can proceed. What is the consensus now in neuroscience? Are they becoming slightly more open to survival of consciousness, psi, brain as a filter? Because my understanding is that 99.9% of neuroscience says none of this is true. Yes. It's a yes and a no. Yes. Most of my colleagues, they don't even think about these matters. I mean, they, they sound like, like some ghost-like novel. And so they don't even think that's worthwhile studying. They're convinced there's nothing in it. And I mean, I don't blame them. They, they're, they have a different business. Now, having said that, so it's not mainstream at all, at all. But having said that, once, if I can use this expression, and I do it deliberately, once you come out of the closet, once as a neuroscientist you say, well, sorry, but maybe I feel different about that, then you realize that more and more people who are silent share with you stories or confess to you that, oh, actually, I also thought about that, but I, perhaps I thought I was too stupid to, to believe in it or... I watch TV and all they say is this and that, therefore I must be wrong, right? So here there's, and, and this, is, this brings our discussion to another level, which is the, the sociological level. There is a clash between experience, your experience, your listener's experience, my experience, and the expert. And I'm also trying to, you know, make them have a healthy relationship where of course, I mean, why am I here? Well, you're inviting me because I'm a physicist, neuroscientist. So I come as the expert on those matters, but I should not be telling you what's right and what's wrong, what you should think and what you shouldn't. And especially when it comes to these experiences, I should not be telling you, oh, this is absolutely rubbish. When this is happening to you, we know it. Your brain is hallucinating. There's nothing in it. I mean, this is, this is really unfair, right? And so when I've started talking about these things, I started knowing more and more people, lay people and also academics and experts who also find me. And then you realize that you're not alone. And, and, and that's also comforting because we're social animals. And <laughs> I mean, I do a lot of work alone here in my cave, in this, in this office, that's my cave. But you also need to read, I mean, you, you're mentioning some previous works before, right? You also need to read, read people who who has engaged with this and also living people. And there's a whole community at IONS, for instance, of course. And once you discover that, well, you start becoming less of a weirdo, right? You say, well, there are other people that do these things really well. I want to learn from them. This is possible. A science of this is possible. I want to ask you a bit about some of the previous researchers. For example, you mentioned Jacobo Grinberg. Yes. I had not known he'd gone missing. What is a little bit of his research? And I'm so sorry to hear he went missing. I didn't know that. Look, you, you, you'll need to stop me because I could talk about him all day long. And 
And I don't uh, know why, it, it, you, know, you know, one of the reasons that captivates me about his work is how little he's known, given how many amazing things theoretically and experimentally, and I, I'll tell you about that in a moment, he did. And I think one of the reasons is because he wrote most of what he did in Spanish because he was from Mexico and I'm not sure he was so, you know, proficient in English. And so it's like one of these, it's like archaeology. It's like you come across one book of his, by the way, he wrote 42 books, 42, 43. So really great writer. Actually, he wrote very well. I think his biggest asset was his imagination. He had an incredible imagination. Scientists need imagination because that's how you, you know, expand and create. And well, he's not well known. Also, another thing to say is that the, the, the official story about the study of consciousness is told so that it's, it started becoming less taboo in the 90s. And I won't go into this now, but there was life before that, meaning people were studying consciousness before that. And Jacobo Greenberg was doing it full on in the 80s. He was a true pioneer. He brought shamans from Mexico to his lab. He was studying meditation decades before it became popular to see monks in neuroscience labs with EEGs meditating. He went to see a really, really famous shaman called Pachita, who did this really unbelievable psychical surgeries. Think whatever you want about them. Jacobo Greenberg also studied the physiological basis of telepathy, not telepathy itself, but this transfer of neural activity between two isolated pairs. He was enamored with the idea of entanglement. He would have loved to see the Nobel Prize to the physics of entanglement from last year and so on and so forth. And he also studied extraocular vision and he, gone, he went missing. He went missing and nobody knows what happened to him. And there's also a film done about his life. It's called The Secret of Dr. Greenberg. It's more like a thriller. And through the story of his disappearing, the director, who I know, by the way, Catalan, like me, from Barcelona, tells the story of his science and also his life that was complicated and, and fascinating. So it's like one of these characters. You, you, you would like to read about his life, about his theory, Synthetic theory, it's called, and about his crazy experiments. Not to start any crazy conspiracy, but is there any thoughts his disappearing was tied into his research? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, of course. It deserves, unfortunately, it deserves this kind of hypothesis. Yes, they said some of the hypotheses is, it's kind of a spoiler on the, on the documentary, but it's really amazing to watch. But some people say he just quitted, he went, he disappeared, he transcended to another dimension, he just went away. Another is that his latest wife killed him. And there are police records and things that don't match. Well, this becomes a bit of a soap opera, but you ask. And then there's a third, at least a third, and there are more, hypothesis, which is that he was taken by the CIA because of what he knew or because they wanted to try things. And he used to fly to Boulder, Colorado. Then, and this is also fascinating in terms of the history of these studies, then there were meetings where the Chinese would present and people from around the world would present about disabilities and the studies. So we don't know. It's open. 
I'm going to put a link to the documentary in the show notes because I feel like we could do a whole separate episode on him. I'm promoting his work. I think that's the best we can do. Now, look, I'm not a fanatic here. I mean, his experiments are improvable and his theory is probably wrong as all theories, but um, it, it must be known today when consciousness studies is back on track and people should know what he did, and especially in Mexico, especially in Spanish-speaking countries. I mean, that's my modern tongue. Spanish and Catalan. And here we have this person who, you know, if he, look, let me put it this way. If he was, if he was an American, everybody will know about him, but he was this Mexican doing crazy things in the, in the university. And, and then he disappeared. <laughs> Is there one experiment he did that really stands out to you? Yes, actually. Well, this one I was mentioning of the, it's called the transferred potential. So it's, it's the, and he, when you read the fine print, he's not saying this is, again, this is proof of telepathy, which, by the way, has been studied by many people through, throughout the, 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 the last century and this one. And, and there's a lot of evidence that it's actually a real phenomenon, right? But the way he was studying it, having these pairs in the lab, and then showing a flash of light on one person and then measuring what he had learned in his postdoctoral research when he went to New York, how to do these things and analyze neural signals that are evoked by this flash of light. And then he would check in the other person whether that change in the brain, in, in neural activity, would be correlating with what had happened with the other pair. Right? So, so what's, that's one of the things he did. And that's one of the last articles he published, actually. And this is also material for the documentary. He had two people telepathically connected. And when one saw the light flash, it responded in the other person's brain. Exactly. Yes. And then he was about to embark on a trip to go to India and try to do the experiment, one person in Mexico, the other in India, and show or test the, the relevance or irrelevance of, of space. Like it doesn't matter if it's in the next room, in the next building or thousands of kilometers away. And he was totally inspired by quantum physics and so on. So basically he wanted to do the entanglement experiment rather than with two particles to do it with two people. And, and then he disappeared. He disappeared right when he was about to do this, to travel to India and do this experiment. Actually, some people thought that he had gone missing because he had gone to Tibet or India. There's a lot to delve into, but I want to ask you, since you're both a neuroscientist and a physicist and studying all of this, and I, I know this doesn't have to be correct, but what would be your guess or thoughts on how all of this works? Non-local consciousness, if you think that is the most likely answer, survival of consciousness from a scientific perspective, how do you explain it? I am happy that you give me the benefit to be wrong because we scientists are ultimately always wrong. I don't know. I don't know, really. I can, honestly, I can propose you my best analogies, metaphors. I can draw from physics. I can draw from quantum mechanics and say, it's probably something like that, but that would be like drawing an analogy. We are right now in a really beautiful moment because it's so chaotic like pieces of evidence, the different theories, the mainstream starts to become interested and people, lay people really want to know. Maybe a way to answer it will be a bit philosophically. And look, okay, let me, let me answer it this way, historically and philosophically, but it may, it, it's, it's scientific too. 
And this month, we're talking in October 2023. So this month is the exact 400th anniversary of a really important book that Galileo, one of the founders of modern science, wrote, right? And in, in this book, he, to make it short, he said, well, on the one hand, we have things that we can put numbers to, that we can measure, like the shape of something, how fast it goes, and so on. And on the other hand, we have feelings, sensations, pain. And he said, well, he didn't put it this way, but that's what he was kind of saying. Well, why don't we just set aside consciousness, sensations, feelings, and just concentrate on the objective, hard, physical world? So I think science has been running an experiment on itself for 400 years, and it's very successful. Look what we've done satellites, we've discovered all these laws, evolution, biology, psychology. It's gone great. But now we turn around and say, hey, Galileo, so th that bit of consciousness that you put to the side, what do we do with it? Do we pretend it's not there? Or do we go full on and study it? And that's what's happening right now. And there are many, many, many theories. There's a joke. Somebody said, well, theories of consciousness are like toothbrushes. Everybody has their own and nobody else wants to use <laughs> another person's, right? Well, it's chaos. Like the, all these proposals, contradictory, and well, we're figuring out. We're figuring out which ones are more useful. And maybe another thing I can say is that this requires a reversal. So we've been told the story of first there are bits of matter, they collide, and then we don't really know really how, and then life emerges, and then we don't know really how, and then mind emerges. There, there's, there are all these many big question marks. They all start by assuming that matter is foundational and mind it's second class. If it was traveling in a train, it would be it would be traveling on, on, on economy and, and matter goes business class, right? Well, perhaps we, do, we need to go balance at least, maybe not upside down, but say, what if mind or consciousness is also primary? It's not something derived, something that comes by chance later, who cares? No, 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 what if, by the way, what if what the sages of all ages have always said, which is that consciousness is the flesh of what the, the, the cosmos is made out of. And so I think that's what science, science can grab that intuition and try to hammer it down onto mathematical theories and experiments. And, and humbly, I think that's what, what we're all doing in this community, including ions again. Do you think something like a much more sophisticated Large Hadron Collider, for example, will ever be able to measure the quantum particles that stores our consciousness? Or will it ever be measurable as a quantum particle, or if you think it's a quantum particle? Can I say yes and no? If it's... Look, I'll ask, it seems, it seems like I'm going to go on another tour, but I'll do it fast. When, when we speak about mind and brain, mind and brain is another way of talking about particles and consciousness. It's like, again, the duality, the physical stuff, the material stuff, and the mental stuff, you know, the mind and the body, the brain and consciousness. Now, all these capacities we've been talking about today, extraocular vision and so on, I believe, I'm trying to, to study to what extent they go beyond the brain. But at the same time, they need to go, they need to go back to the brain because ultimately, it's the person's mouth that, that's telling me what it's looking or if it's moving the hand. So ultimately, the brain sends a command. So what I'm trying to say here is that's going to be both. I think it's going to be whatever goes on in consciousness needs to be reflected in whatever our devices can measure. And this is what we learn 
a hundred years ago, but we don't want to say it too loudly, when quantum physicists went to look at the little bricks of matter, and when they zoomed in and they smashed them against each other to see what they're made of, and I, I know I'm going to put it poetically, but they discovered that matter is made of mind. That was a big surprise. Shit. I mean, we thought we were going to find the little, little, little particles and just solve it all. And it turns out that mm, something of our minds or of mine writ large permeates these little particles, right? So your question about the la Large Hadron Collider, which is these this huge machines where these particles are smashed to see what they turn into and what energies they emit and what they're made of, actually. It's like, by the way, for those listeners who don't know, a good analogy for a Large Hadron Collider is... Imagine you want to know what a watch is made of. You could create a large watch collider and just make watches crash into each other and just explode in a thousand pieces and then collect the pieces. That's what the Large Hadron Collider does to know what particles are, are made of. Now, to your question, I don't think we need to buy yet, to, to, sorry, to buy, yeah, Freudian sleep, to, <laughs> to build and buy another big machine. I think the Large Hadron Collider is our own very minds. That's what we need to work out. The, the inner spaces, right? Yes, we need more telescopes and better telescopes. Yes, we need more microscopes and better microscopes. But I think what we need the most as scientists and as lay people is the inner scope. We need to work on the, our inner scopes in a very scientific way, if you want. And again, we are inventing, reinventing the wheel because that's what the sages of all ages have done. That's what yoga is in a way. It's just sharpening the, 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 the inner scope. You said when particles were broken down, they discovered that they tied into our consciousness. Are you talking about the double slit experiment or what, what are you talking about? No, and, and well, that would need a lot to unpack to make it rigorous and precise. A, th a few questions ago, you say, well, you can, you can just explain it in a way that's... <laughs> uh, it's not that when you collide these particles, you find out they're made of consciousness. It's that the whole story about a universe made of billiard balls, billiard balls, that's the Newtonian mechanistic worldview, you know? What's the cosmos? Just little, little things colliding against little things, and, and then you zoom out and then things happen. Well, quantum mechanics... Is fame, and that's why there are all these interpretations, by the way, which is ways to try to make sense. Well, there are many weird things in the equations and what you need to do. And the, 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 let me put it this way the strange thing is that there are some equations that predict things in, in any, like nothing ever seen, like to the decimal degree, like something really that the human mind could not have expected. You know, that they say, when you do this at this energy and you make this particle collide against this particle, that, that, that's what's going to happen, and it's going to be exactly like that. They go, they measure it, and they discover it, and they validate it. Yes, it's like that. Okay, so now you go back to these equations and you ask, well, if you did so well, what are you telling me? And what these equations, these equations say some things about our access to reality. They question that things are really there when we're not looking at them or actually when we're not measuring them they live in another space that's a mathematical space i don't want to be technical here and then when we do an actual measurement it's like this world of potentiality somehow becomes a world of actuality what we can measure here and now and and there are all these there's this long list of puzzling fascinating things and concepts like 
we discussed entanglement before, like non-locality. What does non-locality mean? It means that that you can take two particles that were in interaction and you can set them far away and then you can do something on one and the other one, and here's where we need to use human language, I'm sorry, the, unless we want to do math on, on, on a whiteboard, right? But then, then the other one knows. But then you say, well, if it knows, it's because this, per, this particle sent a message. Well, not really. And you can do really sophisticated mathematics and experiments to show that it's not say, sending ravens or doves <laughs> microscopically to tell the other per- particle what happened, right? So all of a sudden, this billiard ball mechanistic world becomes really spooky, really fascinating with all these crazy things going on. And well, that's, that's what quantum mechanics brought to, to our understanding of the world. Puzzling, puzzlement, wonder, amazement, and so on. Yeah, and those particles seem to be communicating by a mechanism we have no idea and faster than the speed of light. Yes. Well, and that's, look, and it, let me say something more about it because it's important because you rephrase it. And that's precisely the problem, that we try to imagine a mechanism using the same operating system. It's like we, we try to run the Mac still using Windows 95. You see? So it's like, well, if they're communicating, and that's what Einstein, you know, Einstein didn't like that, you know, so, so because it also has problems with other theories like relativity and so on. But the point is, we're trying to imagine a mechanism, and maybe there's no mechanism. Maybe this just like, you need to enter into this, into this other conceptual scheme and think really differently. By the way, and this is probably very similar to what's happening with these psychic abilities that we've been discussing. That you are asking, well, how does the person read something in front? What's the mechanism? Is it some field? Um, Well, perhaps there's no mechanism as we classically think about it. And that's why we need imagination and also intuition working together with reason to figure out and come up with proposals as to how this may work. It's probably going to take lifetimes to fully understand how it works back to more answerable questions. Well, first of all, well, this is semi-answerable. How do you think EOV ties into OBEs, remote viewing? Do you think it's really the same thing? Is it a combination or is it something completely different? No, it's not completely different. It has to do with, with seeing with one's mind. Or perceiving. Okay, let me use this metaphor to explain. And, and look, I don't have I don't have answers here. I'm really starting to get a grip on this. But imagine a, it rains in the mountain, and there's a, this lake up there of pure water. And then the lake goes down, beautiful river, and the river goes down. And and sometimes what happens to river is that you get affluence. You know, they merge. But it could also happen that the river just bifurcates in two little rivers, and then in three more. And then you go down, as you get down to the mountain, you could say, okay, there are five rivers here or seven rivers, right? And and so that's when we talk at the level of senses. I think that's how it's working. Okay, this is vision. Okay, this water is the water of the information that comes from hearing, and this is touch. Now, if you're able, again, somehow to go up like a salmon, go up the river, at some point, maybe touch or maybe taste and smell merge. And if you're poking those waters of perception, you could not tell really if 
if you're smelling or tasting with your tongue, right? And actually, this is this is also known. It's called synesthesia. It's when the, the senses mix, right? Okay, so now you can imagine you go further up, and maybe there's a point where vision and touch and taste, they all merge. Now, if you go even up there, now, what are you doing? Are you seeing? Are you remote viewing? Well, you're in a higher level. It's not sensing anymore. It's perception. And then, well, we could get technical, but you can use different words. Maybe if you go go even higher the river, it's not perception, it's prehension. And now I'm using philosophical words, but they help us articulate a reality that perhaps is what's going on. And I think the most difficult thing to overcome here is this dogma that we cannot perceive anything that doesn't come through the five senses. So in a way, we've equated sensation with perception. But if you use this river analogy, well, you have sensations, no problem. But up there, you have perceptions, all right. And up there, you have prehensions. And what is prehending? And actually, this is, this is well articulated in a mathematician and a philosopher called Alfred North Whitehead. And he calls these prehensions, when he speaks about this, he speaks about this equally for the mind and for particles, which is beautiful because ultimately, we would want what we know about electrons and photons and so on to resonate uh, as above, so below, to be the same kind of structure, the same kind of thing as with minds, right? That would give us a true united view of the universe. And so that's why those of us who study consciousness are so tempted to go to physics. And that's why those who don't like these themes, they, <laughs> their journals, I don't know if you know, well, this is more the politics, but their journals on consciousness that allow any, any, any research provided that it doesn't mention the word quantum, you see? <laughs> so why? Because I think these two extremes, they bend and they meet. So let me just say another headline here, <laughs> unsubstantiated headline. I think a new theory of consciousness will have to give us a new theory of matter. So I think physics is going to be renewed by our understanding of the mind. It has to, I think so. You have some really interesting ideas for the future experimentation that can be done studying extraocular vision. You mentioned like RNGs, EEGs. Do you want to explain to our listeners what those are and how you can see them tied into your research? Yes. Okay. So once you have things in place, and really, really the most difficult part is all we've been discussing, how to even think about it, what kind of people you find with what abilities, when they manifest, that's the real difficulty. Now, when you have some of these in place, then you can throw at it all the battery of tools and techniques that are routinely used in neuroscience labs to study other aspects of the mind, of consciousness that are not edges. So, all right, I have this in place. Well, why not put a person in the scanner? Why not use um, this other method to stimulate certain brain areas? Why not use AI, artificial intelligence, to try to decode um, neural processing as some people have tried when people are sleep sleeping and they see kind of what they dream. There's a lot of hope and hype and cope and dope in it. But, you know, so, so when you have things in place, we are in 2023, 20, we are in the 21st century. So you use 
all the great tools. And if, if there's one thing we have lots of in neuroscience, it's great tools. We're tool addicted. I don't think we have great ideas. We have lots of experiments with great tools. Okay, so now you have a juicy phenomenon. Let's use all the tools and all the knowledge and all the kind of experimental setups that work for more regular aspects of cognition and behavior, which is where I started, and let's deploy them here. Are there any questions I haven't asked you that you'd like me to or anything else you'd like to share? Probably. I think I think it's been pretty pretty complete. I've enjoyed a lot talking to you. Yes, okay, let me end with an emphasis on the the social aspects of science, because it has to be mentioned. Because you can talk a lot about theory and we've done you can talk a lot about experiment and we've done that. But and I used this metaphor in a previous conversation, and I don't know if I pronounce this well in English, stool. You know when you sit down in a stool, stall, stool? Stool. Yes. So you can sit on a stool made of good theories <laughs> and good experiments. And you, you kind of more or less can sit, but it's not very stable, right? So we need the third leg. And the third leg is a leg that has to do with uh, a community of people that do that, a community of people that are trained to do that. Because most of us who randomly are interested in these and decide to go further, we need to go through a period of... <laughs> professional shaming, I would say. And also we need to learn what we can from here and then and five people. So, and also we need funding and the amount of funding devoted to these topics is infinitesimally small compared to studying wing color in butterflies. Not, not that we shouldn't know about that, right? So that would be more, I would end with a manifesto for this third leg of the stall that we need for this science to take off. And a way to close what I'm saying here is places like the Institute of Noetic Sciences, for instance, are kind of landmarks in the map where, and we need more, we need more like this. We need more places where science is done, education is done, and outreach is done. And this is the third leg. Without it, it's really, really hard. It's, it's naive. It's naive to think that you come with your cool experiment and your cool theory. If you don't have the money, if you don't have the support, if your colleagues shame you for that if you're not able to share it with journalists because look i've i work with journalists and and sometimes they don't want to talk about those things because they will label them as whatever we haven't spoken by the way about all the misuse of language and calling these things pseudo science or super natural or extraordinary right or anti these anti that there's all this canceling around this study which is really ridiculous because we all want to know about that and okay last thing you know i get fired up after the hour <laughs> people die people have near-death experiences people have fam family members that go through terminal lucidity they recover these these cognitive capacities they don't know what's going on i work in a in collaboration with a palliative care unit i cannot tell you about this today but but the nurses tell me all the phenomenology that they know like when people are dying they, they see their disease relative coming and they say, I'll, I'll come and pick you up on Thursday and they know they're going to die on Thursday and they hear angels and all of that stuff. Well, why can't, can't we talk about it? So final thing, there was a TV program that became really, <laughs> really famous in Spain in the 90s and it was called Let's Talk About Sex. We came from the dictatorship. We had a 40-year 40 dictatorship in Spain. And as you can imagine, many things weren't talked about. And this program in the 90s just was a blockbuster. 
finally we can talk about sex. I mean, what a big deal. I mean, everybody should be interested in that and everybody likes it. I mean, let's talk about it. Well, we should be able to talk about these things. We need to talk about these things. We want to know about these things. And so, well, I think programs like yours are helping this cause. So thank you. Thank you. I mean, having actual physicists, neuroscientists, because there are always ones who are coming out saying, oh, none of this is true. And then smart people who are grieving tend to think, well, then none of this must be true. So yeah, the work you're doing is so important. And I know a lot of our listeners are really in grief and question whether there actually could be an afterlife. So research like this is instrumental in helping us understand that. You're you're just prompting in me, I mean, all these thoughts. It's, it's your fault. <laughs> no, I was going to say, a science in service of humanity, of the human being. Not a science of, in service of manipulating this, manipulating that, earning money here. A science that serves, a science practiced by human beings in service of human beings. I mean, we're not asking for more or less than that. Approximately 185,000 murder cases went unsolved from 1980 to 2019. On average, 66% of homicides are solved each year. So what about the other 34%? Alarmingly, the number of murder cases that went unsolved by police hit a new high in 2020, resulting in only 50% of cases being solved, leaving far too many families with no answers, no resolution, no closure. That's why we investigate and report on unsolved cases, to spread the word in hopes of helping families who are searching for answers. We don't sleep, we're just actively looking for her. These girls were alive, they were living, breathing people, they weren't a picture in the media. There was a, a body found in a truck recently. None of us know anything about that body, who, who was it, what happened. What could have happened? Who could have been involved? There's no answer. And, and it's just horrible. A true crime series investigating mysterious unsolved cases. Real people, real stories, real crimes. Tune into Speaking of Crime with your hosts, Gia and John. Available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. We are at Speaking of Crime on Instagram and Facebook, and at Crime Speaking on Twitter. Now we're going to pause for a second for the question of the week. Anne asks, how does it make any sense that consciousness could be created without a brain? You know what, Anne? It doesn't make any sense. I can't really wrap my mind around it either. But also, there's this kind of false belief that consciousness created by a brain makes complete sense while consciousness downloaded by a brain makes no sense. And I don't really agree with that. The more I think about it, how could this brain that's created just by material cells, mass, matter, neurons, how could this material brain just poof, create consciousness and complicated consciousness, identity, 
deep emotions, thoughts, you know, not just amoebas that are trying to survive. And I mean, our brains are material mass and matter. How do they create consciousness? That makes no more sense logically than the concept that these brains can be downloading our consciousness. Consciousness just doesn't really make sense. And to think that theory that it's created by a brain is so much more logical than downloaded by your brain, I have come to think that isn't really true, that that's the most logical explanation. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. Hi, can I ask all of you listening a favor? Would you mind rating and reviewing my book, WTF Just Happened? A Sciency Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife on Amazon? Authors depend so much on ratings. They are crucial to the algorithm and Amazon making sure this book is seen. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you. Where can our listeners find you, follow you? I don't have a book yet to promote. (laughs) And perhaps they can type my name and surname, which is, if you're not a Spanish speaker, maybe you can misspell it. But anyways... They can type Alex Gomez Marin and they can see what pops out. <laughs> they're, they're, unfortunately, unfortunately, their, their Google algorithm will know them. And so, well, I've, I've given a lot of interviews and, and I have a lot of articles, of course. Some of them are more for the experts and others are. But I would just say wildly jump into the, into the Internet and, and see what comes out. And certainly something will come out. I'll post some links to that. Well, you, we can post the link, yeah, the link to my website. I can send you the link to my website where I have all my articles. And I, some of them are readable for lay people. Look, I, I also organize events. I'm the director of the Paris Center. In, it is a beautiful place in a medieval village in, in Tuscany. And we organize their events and we discuss this, these issues on Zoom. So there's a lot of things going on in that respect. That's my work here in Alicante, the Instituto Neurociencia. So you can pick, you, you can pick what Alex you want, you know, the physicist, the, the organizer, the, the spokesperson or the neuroscientist. It was a pleasure indeed. Thank you very much. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to wtfjusthappened.net. There you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened?, a sciency skeptic explores grief, healing, and evidence of an afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, 
Have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at WTF just happened.net. And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened. <laughs>